0: Hello, dear patrons. This is BungaCast. It is Wednesday, the 6th of April. I'm Alex Hokely. I'm with Phil Cunliffe. Hello, Phil. Hi. And with George Hoare. Hello, George. Hello, Alex. Hello. All very formal and curt. Uh, This is another three articles where we have a serious political discussion on current affairs uh, that we often feel is lacking elsewhere. Uh, we all choose a different piece of news or analysis or opinion uh, to discuss, and this time we've we've coordinated. Uh, we've talked off air, which uh, you know was pleasant. Um, you know, to talk to these two guys who I consider fellow fellow podcasters and friends um, about what we should talk about, and very obviously it's Ukraine. We haven't really covered Ukraine in the podcast since the war began. Um, you know, obviously through the fog of war, it's hard to get solid information, we've tried to find some pieces which we think are, at the very least, interesting and hopefully somewhat reliable um, in trying to untangle what's going on both in Ukraine as well as um, what Western and Russian strategy actually is here. Or so... if
1: unreliable, perhaps unreliable in useful ways. Oh, yeah. Nothing exactly. is ever really reliable, apart from us, of course.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um... From, the, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, etc., yeah, well definitely not straight here on
0: Bungacast. Uh anyway, let's <laughs> let's get started. Um the first article is mine. Um it is entitled A proxy war in Ukraine is the worst possible outcome, except for all the others. And it is uh on War on the Rocks, uh, which uh, has as its strapline national security for insiders by insiders. Um, I don't know if I count in that group, but anyway, I've, I've slipped in there and uh, tried to become one of these insiders. It's by Sam Winter Levy, uh, who is a, a PhD student at Princeton um, and writes on warfare and these other issues. Um, the piece argues, and actually pretty it provides some useful background on what proxy wars are and how uh, increasingly frequent they are and their risks and rewards. Um, Basically, a proxy war is high reward, low cost, and provides plausible deniability to, uh, to those sponsoring their proxies. And this is pretty explicit that there is a proxy war going on in Ukraine that Obviously, Russia is directly involved and also has its agents, um, and did since 2014, you know, in the east. But specifically, NATO and, and the West has its agents in in Ukraine and is sponsoring uh, the Ukrainian government, providing it with know-how, uh, military uh, materiel, and everything else. Um, and so, it, it wants us to be, or it, it wants us to be aware and to be explicit about the fact that there's a proxy war going on, and try to debate the pros and cons of this. A little bit of other background, which I found interesting. Over the past 200 years, uh, the number of groups receiving assistance from the outside in military conflicts has gone from one-fifth of the time to four-fifths of the time. And basically, the conclusion from this is that all wars today are proxy wars um, and that this is on the rise. Of course, you know, the Cold War itself was a whole series of hot wars, of hot proxy wars being fought. But nowadays, it seems to be perhaps uh, even more uh, more frequent. I don't know what I'll, you know, Phil can uh, tell me what his take is on that, who follows this more closely. Um it also introduces some of the risks because i've already talked about the positives from uh, from you know the perspective of great powers uh, of what a proxy war offers but the negative side of course is that you can lose control um over your uh you know your proxies effectively in the country which increases risk it also tends and this is an argument that is often made with regard to um you know or a criticism that's made of humanitarian intervention for example um, or supporting you know y- your local moderate forces uh for example in syria is that a the conflict and makes it more likely to recur. And I think this is something that's very evident as great powers pile in, you know, and again, Syria is, is a great example where you had all the major powers uh, with some concern in Syria involved all, um, fi- you know, ba- backing their own side, and indeed in some cases backing several sides. And that just tends to protract the conflict as more arms flow into the country and so on. It also tends to lead it to a style of warfare that Um, has more violent brutality because of the mode of insurgency that it creates and sponsors, and over time is likely to squeeze out any more moderate forces as the conflict becomes more brutalized and um, increasingly more polarized. Um, But it makes an argument that the West should seriously consider that a proxy war in Ukraine is, you know, as the title has it, the worst possible outcome, except for all others. And the argument here is that an easy win for Putin, so I, which is to say, you know, the West withdrawing support from Ukraine would allow Putin an early, vic, an easy victory, would embolden him uh, in the future and strengthen him domestically. Um, so uh, maintaining a proxy war in Ukraine would provide some leverage for, for, for eventual peace negotiations rather than allowing uh, Putin to simply, um, you know, o- overrun Ukraine very quickly
1: guys yes i mean i suppose i would take issue with the premise um the basic premise obviously is that the proxy wars are terrible um but in this case it's necessary because if we don't have a proxy war in ukraine then you know putin will kind of run rampant and that doesn't seem to me to be um You know true it doesn't seem to me to be a safe assumption not only because the you know not only because of all the weaknesses that were exposed i mean you know let's you know not forget like in the 2008 war when russia russian forces could barely drag themselves to tbilisi in the russia-georgian war um but the weaknesses exposed in russia's attempt to occupy ukraine or east ukraine um so the idea that they could run ramage over eastern europe Um, Or, you know, kind of menace the Baltic states or any of that just doesn't seem credible. And that's very clear in the small size of the forces involved, right? Um, They simply don't have even with, you know, the full scale of um, Russia's army. They simply don't have the force to occupy a country the size of Ukraine geographically or in terms of population. And the same is true of Poland or any other kind of state. Um, that Russia could menace. I mean, so just the idea de- that we to,
0: just to play devil's yeah. advocate, though, this of course is in the context of the Ukrainian military having been rebuilt through Western arms. So, you know, its inability to occupy the country is in part a reflection of the fact that the that the West has backed Ukraine.
1: Up to a point, I mean, but it's also just a, you know, it's partly just the question of ratio, right? You need a certain ratio between an occupying invading force and a population that you expect to occupy. And there's simply no, um, you know, there's simply no possibility of the Russians. They just don't have that scale of force. And particularly because they've cast it as a special military operation. The political options, I mean, and we'll come to this in discussion of the other piece, but they've also closed off certain political options to themselves in terms of mobilizing larger resources. So the basic premise of that Russia will be strengthened by this conflict and will become more aggressive, you know, it's the 1930s appeasement. It's re-fight, It's kind of, again, premised on refighting World War II. So to that extent, I don't think it's um, it doesn't hold. It's I think it's a naive piece, you know, because um, it identifies all of the problems associated with proxy war, not least the fact that it will empower some of the worst, most retrogressive elements within a particular country. And obviously, in you know, that means um, as of far right, bandarist nationalists and whatever, and you need to think of the jihadis and um, proto Taliban that were empowered with America's proxy war in Afghanistan so you know it's aware of all the costs but downplays them on the premise that if russia wins you know russia will become mightier and more dangerous and more threatening well, and it's it, that a- last a- assumption that seems to me to be the the kind of the keystone of the argument and also one that's easily kicked away
2: Well, i mean yeah maybe- i mean i think it's it's quite a characteristic um uh, an important piece of of many analyses which is and you can you can kind of hear in some of the language of the piece that you know um, a, the uh, proxy war might be the, the best option available because a, a cheap um, Russian victory there would represent and this is I'm reading from the, the piece here would represent uh, Putin's fourth successful military adventure in a row after all before Russia's recent stumbles in Ukraine the New York Times declared there is no world leader today with a better track record when it comes to using military power so it's a bit like it's a bit like yeah you don't want Russians to to win this war because th- if they start if they start winning games they'll go on a run of form and then they'll try and take over the whole the whole continent it is a bit you know that central idea that the you know, you can't let the Russians win because it will embolden Putin. It will kind of lead to what what the writer calls a, a wider conflagration in Europe. It's well, quite, um, it's you, you quite, don't... um, it's quite a moral kind of blackmaily type, um, type approach where it's like, okay. You know, proxy war has all these costs, but the one thing you can't do is let let Putin win again, because he will start getting ideas above his station and will conquer the whole of Europe or whatever.
0: Well, I mean, part of that question obviously uh, hinges on what you see as Putin's war aims in Ukraine and his broader project. But I think we know and I mean, we'll come on to this is Putin is actually pretty weak domestically or has been and to a certain extent has to rely on this sort of nationalism to bolster his legitimacy. Um, But we'll come to that. The reason why I chose this piece, actually, is because I think it provides some window, I guess, into what Western and specifically American calculus is here. Um, And there's In that regard, you can see why the U.S. would want to continue a proxy war. Of course, they don't have to bear the costs of it. And so you can kind of see provides a window into that calculus. There's something which is unsaid here, of course, which is that if the U.S.'s aim really is to wear down Russia as much as possible. And I think this is a plausible interpretation, which is that the United States' aim is to turn Russia into not just a pariah state, but effectively a failed state, um, then drawing it into a quagmire in Ukraine would be a good way to do that. And I suspect that might be part of what the United States aims to do
2: that, russia. that would so be a different and, that, and so the perpetuation
0: yeah. of the conflict not through direct engagement with them but the perpetuation of the conflict in ukraine to draw in russia as long as possible um might serve that now well, i mean there, there's lots of reports of course about demoralized russian mm. troops about them fragging their generals and so on and it's impossible to know whether that is reliable information or not because you have contrary information saying the exact opposite as well coming from the other side um but but if that is the case and that would uh, certainly bolster the Americans strategy, um, or, or the plausibility of that strategy, and that, you know, Russia would be drawn into a Ukrainian quagmire.
2: I agree. But that would be a more honest analysis than the one that's given here, which essentially, as Phil says, it rests on this idea that not the kind of a, a consideration of the Although this, although the author does kind of start with this kind of quite balanced, uh, like here are the costs and benefits of proxy wars. The ultimately, the conclusion is that we, we have to have a proxy war because you can't let Putin win. I mean, that's the that's um that's where the analysis slips into kind of kind of moralism because it doesn't continue as you were sort of saying, Alex, that by saying you know the proxy wars could represent a, a good strategy and could actually have a, a higher benefit than cost. I, I for, don't know what's the moralism know, there. I don't
0: understand what the, what the moralism is.
2: Talking about emboldening Putin and saying that, you know, no world leader today, it, it's personalizing all around the, like one individual bad man, basically, and saying you can't let him win, you can't let... You know, he he can't be emboldened to to take further steps, and and there to be a wider conflagration. Well, it's like, I mean, it,
0: Russia, that's a classic. Russia's that's a classic. around Putin, so I think it's I, like it, it's not about. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have any time for demonization of Putin or Russia, obviously. But
1: yeah, but it's again, I mean, it kind of it that require, you know that frame requires the kind of um ignoring or omitting the fact that Russia is essentially reactive. You know, not only weak, but also reactive in this situation, lashing out at NATO encroachment. And I mean, you know, that's already, you know, that's um, not accepted, but a familiar, you know, not accepted by all, but certainly a familiar element in the debate that this is a. War that is in reaction to NATO encroachment. Actually, and so the okay. idea that it's, you know, that this was kind of um, signaling a Russia that's ready to take over the world and that if we don't fight him in Ukraine, we'll be fighting him on the beaches, you know, that is kind of obvious I guess, nonsense. No, I agree.
0: I, no, no, I agree. I, to raise a question, actually, um, which is um, worth discussing, is how do we read a lot of the ideological dressing, and putting it that way already kind of, uh, I guess, uh, gives light to what I think about very neutral way to frame the the ideological dressing that accompanies it. So, you know, I agree that Russia is reactive, that's always been my understanding of what Russia's approach to its so called near abroad has been, especially um, in Europe, uh, against NATO encroachment. But of course, all the ideological justification that has come along with this is all about Slavic brotherhood no creating you know taking over novo Novorussia, um which is there in the south of ukraine i think, I think that I the, think the it's kind pronounced of with the uh,
1: russian accent not with the latin accent no
0: i can't well I'm, I'm i'm i haven't started learning russian yet so we'll have to wait on that um but uh and and this whole kind of orthodox national not orthodox nationalism but like orthodox russian nationalism
1: yeah um, so i mean i know I mean, so um, I know some people have taken this. You know, some people have taken this quite seriously, like um, like uh, the editor at um, at uh, Unheard, Aris Roussinos. He's taken this kind of civilizational conflict quite seriously, Rod Dreher, who writes for the American Conservative, who's himself orthodox Christian, has picked up on the elements of the disintegration of the Russian orthodox church, and how that was um, kind of spurred by the Americans, and has made the case that that the secession of the Ukrainian orthodox church from the Russian one is kind of an important part of the conflict. And I mean, I'm, I'm more skeptical. I think it's more, I think, so Russia is still kind of trying to claim its defense of a pluralist world order governed by the UN Charter and under the supremacy of the UN Security Council and that's been the consistent thread in the way in which Russia's justified its approach to international order and so if you want to maintain that how do you maintain that world of independent sovereign nation-states and their right to be free from foreign interference while at the same time justifying the um, uh, so-called special military operation in another country. Well, the way you do that is by denying that that country is really a state, an independent mm. nation state at all. So you deny that it has any meaning or coherence. It's an artificial construct by the perfid—you know—by Lenin, the perfidious Bolshevik. Um, and in fact, it's so deeply intertwined with Russian history. It doesn't. Re- it's not really entitled to the legal and political defences that come with independent sovereignty. So that's I read it as a way in which Putin is seeking to justify the invasion while also trying to maintain a pretense towards an international order based on state sovereignty which has been Russia's position for um you know since the end of the Cold War essentially. So I'm I'm more skeptical. I mean I'm sure the civilizational rhetoric goes down well in some kind of Russian nationalist quarters, but I don't think it's um I'm not it's not the way to frame I think the vision of international order that is, um, you know, that's prevalent in the Kremlin. That'd be my mm. take, anyway. No, I would find that very
0: convincing. Yeah,
2: I mean, just just to ret- return to to the piece and, and one problem that I think, I think basically the, the 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 sorts of analyses that I guess sort of most I, I find the least useful are ones which are either grounded in uh, Putin's psychology. Um, and this, you know, the author of this piece talks about uh putin's imperial fantasies and it's like this isn't i just i think if you've run out of other explanations you go to kind of the psychology of of the of leader and that's not very useful and those i don't find particularly helpful the other are about the, the the eternal russian soul i mean not many people have actually been uh been using this analysis but i did um have a conversation with a a friend who is an IR scholar, and they were saying that this is, you know, this is one way to one way to look at it. Not the, not a way that they were endorsing, but this kind of idea that you have this um, <clears throat> kind of permanently morose, warlike people who are just looking to invade left right and center just uh, Um,
1: just for the record that friend wasn't me just for our listeners so
2: (laughs) no no i i I mean they're they're a listener to this to this podcast i I think they might well end up hearing this and they can they can comment if they so choose and and defend um their their picture of the russian soul um no but i think yeah it's like those sorts (sighs) moving to a more like real like even a, a basic assessment of interests and costs and benefits which i think some of the you know particularly one of the other pieces does do it's just way more useful and way more like likely to to generate a good explanation and actually to be able to predict what might happen next
1: there's the other so, i think there's another element i would want to add to this piece about its political naivety so you know it's a very kind of clever it's a very it's a very good analysis of proxy wars you know i mean it I'd not obviously i'm left cold by its attempt to justify their need for a proxy war in ukraine but as a general analysis of proxy wars and how they grow in inverse proportion to the spread of nuclear weapons among the great powers um so you know all of that kind of um you know all of that is convincing but where it's so it's kind of the clever you know the clever military strategic analysis but lacking but then very politically naive because on the other side you can't take the american state as some uh, you know kind of efficient calculating machine that is unitary and mm. cohesive you know there's going to be so many kind of america you know multiple american interests within the security state within the american kind of um you know deep state within among american kind of politicians and political factions who will all have different views about how far to push this proxy war whether to seize the opportunity to you know mount regime change in russia by proxy whether you know when they can call it off when they can't call it off and so the idea that it can be conducted with um you know kind of easily not only in terms of what happened you know he assumes it'll be easy on the american side and difficult on the ukrainian side whereas the real reality is not only will it be difficult and bloody on the side of the ukrainian side it will also be difficult on the american side because there will be all sorts of conflicting political pressures on the american side and you can't guarantee that people like him you know the smart strategic calculating thinkers will be the ones who will be calling the shots as to when the proxy war is going to end
0: Okay, so all this raises uh, a question, obviously a discussion which we haven't had about what the nature of Putin's aims are, what the nature of his regime is and how Russian elites are responding to it. So I'm going to pass over to George.
2: Yeah, so the piece... um that i'm i'm bringing today is um uh, a piece in faradaily.substack.com which is um the substack of uh and i probably will be mispronouncing this and not putting the emphasis on the second syllable as you should um in russian but um farida Rustamova. <laughs> that's probably right uh, apologies um farida um but yeah it's a really it's a really good piece that Uh, is titled now we're going to fuck them all what's happening in russia's elites after a month of war and the basic contention of this article is that sanctions and propaganda have rallied even those who were against the invasion around putin and the idea is that there's you know quite a few interviews with various um, members of the russian elites where, you know, talking about how, how have their attitudes towards the war changed in the past month and um, and longer. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the longest of the three pieces, but it's quite an easy read because it, you know, draws a, a lot of um, quotes, some of which I think are really very informative and interesting um, together uh, to basically say this is how the uh, Russian elites have, have kind of responded both to, I think, two, two elements. One is this internal... Um, kind of propaganda and and information from the Russian state and secondly the obviously the sanctions and what impact those have had so yeah I think it's a it's an important kind of um extra element of the analysis because it's looking at you know the internal constitution of Russian society and particularly the elites and how the war has um affected affected them so yeah this is my piece for today
0: yeah I found it very interesting.
2: I think being the main
0: takeaway being that the war, the effect of the war has been to nationalize Russia's elite. And elite here refers both to sort of senior civil servants, as well as to oligarchs and um, you know their high ranking um, servants or whatever. Um, so it's both with business and the political elite. And it has the effect of nationalizing that elite in terms of making them recognize that their future is tied to Russia, that there is no... Um, you know, they can't go off and seek a kind of, uh, you know, uh, decadent consumerist lifestyle often, um, you know, often in other countries, but that they that their futures are tied to Russia and that they have to kind of bring it home. And that for the next 10, 15 years, I think one of her interviewers, interviewees says for the next 10, 15 years, we're stuck with Russia. And I think that probably serves Putin's aims. Um, To a certain extent, you know, Putin rose to power, to counter the chaos of '90s Russia, and that never again became the the refrain that you know ne- the ni- '1990s never again, and to impose a little bit of order, um, and to rein in a little bit, at least, some of the oligarchs. Of course, he you know he, he his aim was always you know to a certain extent have a a a. a Russian business elite, um, in fact, he even commented on you know the Soviet period, like you know what the fuck were we caring about creating a fairer society? We should be been creating our own capitalist to, to to you know to outcompete the Western capitalists. So that's always been his his vision. But I think to bring the the kind of Russian elite home, um, I think some it satisfies his some of his aims.
1: Yeah, I mean, I so there were two things i suppose that struck me about this piece is i was very taken with it right until the end um because it does you know it has very um it has these fantastic insights and you know even though there's so many anonymous sources so many of the um quotes and the claims and um, assertions you know seem plausible and substantiated in as much as they can be with anonymous sources but then at the end it you know i was a bit less um, convinced because and it made me question in fact the earlier claims because it indulged this idea that roman abramovich who's become a de facto interlocutor or mediator between russia and ukraine that he was poisoned so this was a rumor that was kind of swept around social media and was initially kind of put up by bellingcat the Open source intelligence, whatever the hell it is, kind of your um, what your like backyard, um, your backyard CIA, social media CIA, whatever the hell, anyway. But they, you okay. know, they kind of um promoted this idea that there had been an assassination attempt by poisoning on several kind of figures, including Abramovich. Then it was denied, including by Abramovich himself, who seems to be fine. But this seems to, you know, this piece seems to. Indulgent, though, it acknowledges that, you know, it was denied, including by the CIA and Western intelligence agencies claimed. So, you know, that makes the whole picture look a bit more messy. The other element I think that was interesting to me was the presumption of the whole piece seems to be that there is, uh, you know, that this is backfired. So they put all these kind of enormous imposing sanctions on Russian elites in order to put pressure on them, in order to overthrow Putin, essentially, or at least to restrain him and rein him in. And in fact, they've all, you know, kind of plumped for Russia instead. And I wonder if that's, you know, if that's a bit too naive again in the reading, because it seems to me, you know, very convenient, in fact, to, you know, it suits everybody very well. You know, there's Russophobic elites. They're taking their revenge on Russia for Brexit and Putin and everything else. And they've basically forced the situation so they don't have to, you know, they don't have to go through the more kind of complex process of um, kind of uh, pressuring Putin here and there, identifying somebody they want to take over. What they do is they simply have um, forced kind of the Russian elite's backs up against the wall. And now they have... Uh, forever war you know a new forever war in ukraine just to replace the forever war that just ended in afghanistan last year
2: So so what so you're so you're you're you would question whether sanctions were really designed to to put pressure on the the russian elites and the i guess the russian pmc
1: yeah well. the, the presumption that seems to be the presump you know the presumption is oh this has gone terribly wrong because it's forced everyone together but it seems to me that maybe not if it was not always the intended effect it seems to me a very convenient effect that serves western interests in this conflict rather than undermining them
2: yeah i mean that's a i guess a, diff- a question that's probably beyond the beyond the, the scope of this of this piece i mean i think the, the point about you know whatever the actual state you know the stated and the actual uh, um intentions of of western sanctions were the i think it's it seems really plausible to me and i you know don't have any way to really to to kind of to know really beyond this piece but the some of the quotes i think resonate like the, the one that you alluded to um, before Alex, one of the interviewees says, "All these personal sanctions cement the elites. Everyone who is thinking about a new life understands that for the next ten to fifteen years, at least, their lives are going to be concentrated in Russia. Their children will study in Russia. Their families will live in Russia. These people feel offended. They will not overthrow anyone, but will build their lives here. And so, this this picture of the essentially the consolidation of the elites around a you know around a national a more national identity or at least more nationally focused economic interest that seems really." Um, that seems really to be true. I guess the question is, yeah, what, why, why would Western um, <clears throat> elite Western sanctions be thought to have have driven a wedge between uh, between Putin and and the elites, if given the the sorts of kind of brands and um, you know models of consumption that were particularly hurt by the sanctions were you know were ones which which elites and, and there's much smaller than in Western context, Russian PMC would would be engaging in. So, yeah.
1: I mean, I the other element I thought was very striking was also how um, the sadism of some of the sanctions, you know, with respect to, say, um, you know, Russian sportsmen, composers, and in particular the Russian Paralympians, yeah. who also fell foul of the sanctions, and how influential that seems to have been in um, encouraging kind of um, Russian civil servants to line up behind the regime. So I thought that was also, you know, the excessiveness and and the kind of the irrationality of the sanctions as well. That seems to me to also, you know, that was very predictable and obvious that anyone who saw the way in which kind of ordinary Russian citizens were effectively targeted and, you know, effectively persecuted by sanctions and making all Russians complicit effectively just by virtue of being Russian. Unless you express your dissidence at great personal cost and risk to the regime, you're going to be forced into lining up behind the regime effectively. And that comes across very strongly in this piece. And it seems to me difficult to avoid, again, the suspicion that perhaps it doesn't matter so much that that's the effect of these sanctions rather than it being an unintended consequence. It doesn't really matter to them that much the fact that they've to strengthened to Putin's the West. hand.
0: The West to the yeah. people
1: who've been designing them, propagating, justifying, and authorizing the sanctions. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's a question of time scale here, of course, as well. That you know, this is in the immediate aftermath of the, of many of these sanctions being imposed. Of course, there's been a ratcheting up of sanctions over the past period. You know, b- well before the, inv- the the recent invasion of Ukraine at the beginning of the year. But of course, you could speculate that you know, maintaining these sanctions over a long period of time will eventually. Uh, create some fissures in in the Russian ruling class and some seek to depose Putin or whatever. But I think the fact of the matter is, is that there's no intention for the West to maintain these sanctions over a long period of time. I think there's, they have, there's economic interests which militate against that even. So my understanding is that these sanctions are meant to be relatively short term. I don't know, of course, what that necessarily means, whether it's six months or three years. But, um, you know, I don't think there's an idea that this would be maintained for 10 years, Right, that it would be a complete exclusion of of all, well, certainly mm. all lead Russians from from the rest of the world, cut off from Swift, etc. But there's I think, I I guess, guess, will... and not to mention and not to mention mm. Russia's that, that it seems to Russia. be the assumption
1: that it will be. Yeah, mm. I mean, unless you know, unless there, unless there's a peace deal in Ukraine, which the West is willing to sign up to, it seems to me very clear that they're happy to keep Russia under siege for an indefinite period of time.
2: Of and course, at the same time, strong... I mean the. The, the kind of the and the symbolic damage if you want to put it that way the symbolic damage has already been done it's like that that forcing of having to choose between you know uh will you will you like um speak up against the war or will you have very like yeah well if you're a composer will you be will you be fired because just because of your nationality um yeah i mean so it's a quite a um i guess then the question is what what other than virtue signaling what is what were these sanctions supposed to achieve? Because clearly they have had a, a serious economic impact on the populations of um, Western countries already. I mean, there was an article in in Bloomberg that you know um, the average American household should should budget an extra five five thousand dollars this year for cost of living increases, and part of this obviously is the price to be paid, the sacrifices that we will have to make um, to you know to to be on the right side of of this war, you know, put on, across, a, put, on a jumper,
0: put on a jumper to defeat Putin, you know, through the winter. Yeah,
2: exactly. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's strange, because it doesn't seem to be a particularly kind of rational or logical, um, or advantageous for, like way to, to proceed with these sorts of sanctions. But, you know, you do I don't think you want to underestimate how irrational the, uh, the, the ruling class of Western states are no i time. think that, i
0: think that's i think that's important i mean as to russia there's a question over what the putin regime does cuz i think it is unable to create to depend on a sort of autarchic russosphere um for its survival and it needs to sell hydrocarbons to to customers and of course you know it has a willing buyer in china but that bears with it other risk in terms of dependency on on china and and chinese capital's incursion into kind of Russian areas too, you know, or Russia's sort of near abroad. So obviously there is a sort of a, a crunch that Russia will face. And if unemployment starts rising and so on, that will, you know, that will dramatically change the situation. So um, I think, you know, we're still in the very early days of this in seeing how this will unravel economically, both in Russia, as well as in the West. Um, yeah,
2: definitely. Just a, just a, a quick final point on, on, the, on the article itself. I think there was some interesting like divisions between different age groups and how they're um, responding. I'm not sure. I mean, again, it's difficult to know whether this is actually correct or not, but some of it does seem seem like there would be something in it. Many older people feeling enthusiastic and have, feeling an opportunity to make money and start over just like the 90s, kind of pe- middle-aged people, 45 to 50, who caught the end of the Soviet era and their youth are kind of um, continuing their affairs, but without any special enthusiasm. And the most frustrated are kind of 35 to 40-year-olds who feel like they've lost their most recent accomplishments, which you know they, they might tend to be the the most kind of cosmopolitan or, or outward looking, um, and yeah, I guess the question of like what what will happen to that, particularly that group. I mean, if that is if the um, author is is correct in their analysis, like what will happen to that group as the like the longer term reality <clears throat> of de- of decreased kind of. Uh, international opportunities or, or having to to have chinese phones rather than iphones or um drive chinese or russian cars rather than uh, german ones what will happen to this group i mean is, is it a potential source of dissent or will it you know will it be tied towards a, uh, to more closely to a russian national project mm. difficult to say yeah, no, and it's a big, it's a big, I guess, challenge to globalization, at least as Russians
0: are concerned, um, at least in terms of the, the kind of superficial aspects of globalization in terms of travel and consumption, whatever. Um, we haven't actually talked very much directly about Ukraine um, and its own calculations. So, Phil.
1: Yes, so this piece is in the Financial Times, it's published by Um, or written rather by James Scher, who is a writer, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute. How far that represents kind of foreign policy or political outlook in the Baltics, I don't know. The title is Zelensky's muddled neutrality plan is not the answer for Ukraine. It was published on 3rd of April and it is, as the title suggests, essentially a critique of the idea of neutrality being a coherent um, option for Ukraine. It generally raises kind of a series, you know, it kind of drops a few bombs on the, so to speak, on the idea of neutrality as a viable political option for any country um and then specifically kind of seeks to kind of uh, pull apart. The justifications or draw out some of the implications which have so far been unanswered or um, are still open ended with respect to what Ukraine, Ukrainian neutrality would look like. So it raises a few specific things that make Ukrainian neutrality unattractive, according to Mr. Sure. So the, forward, the first one is the idea that or the most important one is the idea that um, you could have Ukraine's neutrality preserved by some kind of security guarantee. So why would it be, grant, why would a security guarantee a supposedly stronger than NATO security guarantees work to preserve Ukrainian neutrality, according to the author? Um, why would NATO countries that have been unwilling to guarantee Ukrainian security thus far to the idea of going to war you know, to defend Ukraine, why would they defend Ukrainian neutrality? And also it's self-defeating according to the author because once Ukraine is at peace with Russia, um, where will be the incentive to, again, where will be the incentive to defend Ukraine? Should Ukraine's neutrality come into question again from you know further Russian um, subversion or military intervention in future? So it says, suggests essentially that it's incoherent, that the idea of neutrality, at least as as least as what Zelensky's put forward so far, is a model. And it suggests that part of this model is the fact that it was drawn up by Zelensky's presidential office directly, and that this is evident in the COSA um, stamp of amateurism, it says, and that it's not been drawn up in consultation with the foreign and defense ministries. It says also, Zelensky has said that, um, has indicated that there would be some kind of um, Ukraine-wide referendum on any kind of neutrality plan. And the James Sher, the author, suggests that this might go, you know, the Ukrainians might even vote against Zelensky and vote against neutrality.
0: Yeah, I thought it was useful, at least in poking holes in this notion of a neutrality which would also benefit from security guarantees, which would not come under the aegis of NATO. And that that would somehow be stronger than NATO. I thought, I found that convincing. On the other hand, you know, we're dealing here with all, you know, suboptimal outcomes, right? Nothing is good as in the discussion of the, as as we already discussed with relation to proxy wars. There is not exactly a perfect solution to the situation in Ukraine for Ukrainians or in terms of world peace. Um, And so in that regard, the signing of a of a neutrality agreement, even if it's not guaranteed, and would still leave Ukraine open to further Russian incursions, I think as long as it would satisfy, um, or at least as, as as long as Russia would be able to trade on that. For example, um, sloughing off, that Ukraine would slough off uh, to Russia some areas in the east of the country, the Donbass and Lukansk republics, or so-called people's republics, perhaps Crimea Crimea as well, and that there's a deal sign then and that some neutrality is agreed um,
2: strikes me as the least worst solution surely I guess my at reading this I think the the idea or the, the starting point that neutrality is is um, is an option or is, is is something which should be thought about seriously that's a good that's a good starting point or at least better than a kind of mindless like this could all be solved with with more NATO. Um, but I guess the the question that it sort of made me think, and, and as you were saying, Alex, what I was thinking was that, is it possible really to have neutrality without, you know, to be really crude about it? Like, what is that neutrality backed by? Like, ultimately, can you be neutral without having Nuclear defenses, like what is the? Because otherwise, it's not really neutral. You're gonna have to, um, if you're in a, a situation where that neutrality is 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 questioned or is is under threat, then you would have to resort to 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 some non-neutral other actors. I mean, yeah, if, if, I, I if might Switzerland be being sort was
0: somewhere, Switzerland was somewhere in the South China Sea or in Central Asia, um, how how uh, respected would its neutrality be, for instance?
1: Yeah. yeah, but it's in Europe. I mean, you know, like the that's most the conflict prone continent where the most devastating, you know, geopolitical conflicts have happened in the last century, and it has preserved its neutrality.
0: Well, that's because it was kind of chummy with Nazi Germany and did financial work for it during the Second World War. Right. So that I mean, that that at least was preserved its uh, its its peace, uh, at, you know, in, in, in the 40s.
1: There are costs. I mean, so, you know, I mean, I, I, the reason I liked this piece was because it's taking the, even though it's very, I think neutrality is the only, you know, viable option to solve the conflict in a way that preserves, has the best chance of preserving um, Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. Um, what's in, interesting to me about this piece though, is that it takes the politics of an end, an end point seriously through its critique of neutrality. I don't, so, and as, in, you know, as as listeners might have gathered from the exchange I just had with Alex, um, that I don't think the the way in which the author dunks on neutrality as a viable political status, you know, I don't, it seems to me, overblown. It's not to say, obviously, that neutrality doesn't come with costs, but it seems to me the best way to preserve Ukraine's and it is, I think it is, it's a viable option and it doesn't perhaps require to, it doesn't need to necessarily rest on external security guarantees as much as the author assumes, precisely because the Ukrainians have shown themselves um, in the strength of, in the effectiveness of their response to the Russian invasion and the fact that even Eastern Ukraine seems to now be, have been um, given the, it's, uh, you know, the brutality of the Russian invasion um, invasion that it's except you know that it's turned against whatever sympathies they might have had for putin moscow and russia so that our ukrainian nation has effectively been forged in opposition to the russian invasion and the strength of that seems to me to indicate that ukraine would be strong enough to stand alone Um, and that the best way to do you know the best way to preserve that is precisely not to make itself a protectorate if its independence and sovereignty is to be valued it should not be a protectorate of the west just as much as it should not be a protectorate um of russia so that does leave the and the author says you know this leaves the question of the eastern eastern provinces of ukraine kind of open as well as crimea how do you because there's very it's very difficult to imagine um the central government in kiev um being willing willing to abandon that territory Um, And the other element I thought, which was interesting, and nobody else has picked up on this as far as I know, is that it indicates there might be a power struggle within the Ukrainian state itself, right? Mm -hmm. So that Zelensky might be the executive and Zelensky might be trying to kind of carve out a position for himself against um, the Ukrainian security bureaucracy, essentially, which I imagine is probably much more pro-Western, pro-NATO, and much more politically dependent on Western patronage, And you know they're the ones who are probably cutting the deals, getting the arms in. They're the ones who are listening to all the promises being made by the CIA and you know the you know the State Department and the EU and all of that. Whereas Zelensky actually has to carry the can for the country as a whole, right? And so that seems to me to be you know it seems to me like the idea that there might be a power struggle within Ukraine itself, an important element to um, to the conflict that has been overlooked.
2: I guess the question though still remains whether I guess whether neutrality is is possible at this point or whether the you know as you mentioned the kind of the um, the arms that have been given to uh, to Ukraine already these deals that have been made whether that means you know neutrality the the, the ship has has sailed at this point I guess my
1: well, it's it, a political I'm... question they're not a military one I mean it's not like having certain kinds of guns forces yeah. you away from neutrality right
2: yeah but it, then it there is a i guess my question is still whether there is a military element of the, the question which is essentially a question of self you know of of self defense without without uh, resorting to allies as i kind of you know crudely put it to start with like is that has that been has that been been proved in well in I mean the, the case of Ukraine at this point in time I don't know the, the contrast obviously in a lot of people have been talking about finlandization
0: um and this article argues that that's impossible and I think that's probably correct there's an interesting thread on Twitter a little while ago um obviously responding to these discussions the outlining what Finland's defense looks like against Russia and of course it has a huge capacity for mobilization everybody goes through military training there's Uh, you know, there's hidden bunkers all over the place, etc. And the the idea, of course, is not that Finland could defeat the Russian army, but that it could impose such high costs as to deter it, or at least uh, prolong any Russian attack on Finland until, you know, it it gains more support. But of course, you know,
1: Ukraine's already, but I think, I mean, that's the point, right? Ukraine has already demonstrated its capacity to be that Russia cannot occupy it. I mean, that already seems to be clear, right? uh,
0: Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, it's yeah that definitely seems to be seems to be the case i
2: mean well i'm i don't know that's that's what i I mean i think if that is the case then the pot then a policy of of neutrality does seem to be possible but if it's if that if i mean if if that hasn't been been proved, then it it is a bit more difficult to to make the argument you mean that so the question is not so much neutrality but whether
0: ukrainian statehood itself is plausible for that then to become neutral right that which is to say will russia take Ukraine, will it it be able to take Kiev, impose regime change in in Ukraine, and so on? They clearly
1: can't, right? I mean, that's already obvious. I suspect not. I mean,
0: of course, the question hanging over all of this is what exactly are Russia's war aims, and we're none the wiser really about that. Uh, Russian generals have recently announced that they will not that their, their intention is not to take kiev that the that the bombings even of kharkiv and that a- the area there in the north of the country was somehow accidental or incidental and that you know their their focus is turning to you know the south of the country uh, around the yeah so Zola there is
1: i mean yeah, there's two. So I've seen two lines on this. And again, I mean, as you said, Alex, earlier on, I mean, it really is kind of uh, difficult to read. But the first line is that this is a tremendous, you know, kind of Russia expected to sweep through all of Ukraine, take all of the East, seize, seize Kiev, um, overrun it easily, you know, and install a puppet government. And they've been defeated outside Kiev. And now they're withdrawing with their tail between their legs. The other line is that that was, you know, that was some kind of parry or feint. To tie down ukrainian forces around the capital city while russia kind of mustered in order to um isolate the ukrainian troops tens of thousands of which are still in eastern ukraine and so now they can be more easily encircled and cut off and that allows russia to take eastern ukraine more effectively you know i mean they both say both seem equally plausible it's hard to know i guess we'll find uh, out soon enough
2: well that's the point right that the, the longer it area- goes on the more uh the less plausible it is that this is just um, some some how many dimensional chess kind of military move on russia's part and the more plausible it you know it, it does it does seem at least to me that you know the, the ukrainian defense is is successful so or during, I think or that russia
0: is we- simply weaker i mean there's what there's an argument yeah. in a piece another piece on war on the rocks by um a fellow at a at a u.s defense think tank, um, not not associated with the state, presumably, but I guess all these things sort of are um, that Russia actually wanted to engage in coercive diplomacy. And when that didn't work, that they then resorted to this more full on assault on Ukraine, um, which has now been kind of uh, not as successful as they wanted. It was a bit haphazard. Um, they, they they had, you know, problems with maintaining supply lines and all the rest of it. And that now have kind of reoriented towards a more minimal strategy, more minimal aims of taking and securing the sort of, uh, you know, area around the Eastern Republics and maybe potentially taking Crimea, but no further. Um, and that seems plausible to me as well. Um, but yeah, again, we're, not, we're sort of none the wiser.
1: So all that, I mean, all that said, it seems to me this is a very sophisticated Um, defense essentially of proxy war. So because it rules out or attempts to rule out the option of neutrality as some as a viable end state for Ukraine and for the conflict, it seems to me that see, you know, that it's essentially a vision of, um, proxy war to the end in, um, or you know, a forever war in Ukraine, at least until Russia's totally defeated, or you have regime change. So it seems essentially this seems to be um, making the case in attacking the idea of neutrality. It seems to be making the case for the hard NATO line. I guess in
2: probably then there's the the conclusion is fairly similar to the piece in in that sense of the piece that Alex um presented that the you know a kind of a defense or all roads lead to to proxy wars that there's a kind of you know that's that's the it seems like that's almost what's being set up or being prepared for is and maybe across all three pieces like so the proxy war is the least bad option the um there's no hope for like Russian um, splintering of the elites, they're actually quite consolidated behind behind Putin. So there's no, you, you're not going to have regime change in in Russia. You're not going to have Ukrainian neutrality. So like it's we we, we should prepare for <laughs> increased cost of living uh, forever and a, and a, and a very long proxy war in in between Russia and Ukraine. And, and that's kind of interestingly sort of
0: one of the implications of of the piece that you introduced, George, which is that there's a bit of a standoff, if if this is what is going to happen, or at least this is the intention of Western strategists, that, you know, how long can each side deal with economic fallout from this, right? How long can Russia hold on? As we've discussed previously, Russia has built up a huge war chest, huge reserves to be able to see this out for a determinate amount of time. Now, of course, that might both uh, bolster or, you know, hold up the regime,
1: yeah, but they by- were seized by the central banks reserves some, were seized right some of, it, so.
0: some, of it, some of it was yeah they do have kind of stuff in gold and other and and the rest but that might sustain the the russian state but it's a question of how that impacts ordinary russians living standards if there's mass unemployment and equally in the west as well um of course the west doesn't have that sort of nationalist appeal that russia does have to, to, to rely on. Okay, okay. I'm not suggesting that kind of. There's some essential Russian soul which is nationalist and will suffer every sort of uh, difficulty and indignity, you know, in defense of the Russian state. That's not what I'm arguing. But I think there's a relative difference between um, what is going on in Russia versus the West. If there if it if there's such high fuel prices for a long period of time, how long are Western citizens willing to sit that out? Especially in a context in which. Um, the belief in the official establishment narrative surrounding the war is ever weaker. And it's surprising how many, for example, conservatives in the U S don't really buy the defense of Ukraine. Okay. Part of that is to do with the liberal establishment being so pro Ukraine that they naturally um, choose the opposite side. But I think just among the citizenry at large, perhaps not necessarily that politicized, there's a lack of belief and confidence in what the, elites are saying about, about this war and less likely to tolerate, um, you know, the kind of hunkering down in defense of whatever is happening in Eastern Europe. So I think that's a, a, will be a factor in this.
2: Yeah. I mean, one, one conclusion here is that essentially, I guess the, the the ground is being prepared in in these analyses for uh, us to accept longer, long-term sacrifices in a long war, um, that we're obviously on Ukraine side against the Russians. So the, you know, to, to be kind of like, what, what are the stakes, you know, to ask that question, it, I mean, that, that sort of, you know, to be crude about it, the analyses do tend towards a position, which is essentially, this is, you know, this is intractable given where the, the, the options available to the participants, therefore we need to have a, a long, um, Proxy war, which is going to ultimately lead to inflation and, and higher costs at home. So, I mean, I might I might be kind of drawing too much out of it, but that does seem to me to be to be you know that's that's part of the ideological function, perhaps of these of these positions. So, I mean, maybe just to conclude, what
0: I mean, what would be um, our take or position on that? I mean, what if you you know if you're in, if you're in a Western country, what is your political stance? Um, is it Abandon Ukraine, do not support Ukraine. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not entirely comfortable with that position. But of course, the alternative of we must support Ukraine with everything is also problematic. So, you know, you're left saying, well, you know, we should take in as many Ukrainian refugees as, as, as needs be. But what else?
1: Support what in Ukraine? Support NATO expansion, support a support forever war in Ukraine, um or support ukrainian sovereignty and independence um which you know to me that the latter seems to be best served by um ukrainian neutrality and a peace settlement of some kind um so i mean there's no you know the question of what what is it that you're supporting exactly that's what i think would have to be clarified before you could offer any um you know any kind of clear response um so it's not enough simply to repel the Russian invasion, but obviously it requires some kind of long-term political order in the region, you know. And so that opens up the question of what Ukraine's future status will be once the Russians have been expelled.
2: It has to be. I mean, neutrality is is. I think that's that's got to be the central, the central kind of plank. I mean. The one thing is, it is worth commenting on. And we've 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 stayed awa- away from any quote unquote culture wars analyses. But the you know this has happened. I, I was at a or uh, at, at an event where the Ukrainian national anthem was was played and everybody stood up in in solidarity, and that's very strange. I mean that is I mean if it had been God Save the Queen, <laughs> there would not have been very many people standing. <laughs> so it's a uh, you know it th- there is an element of like trying to keep to the political stakes of the conflict and actually do this sort of analysis and not be like swept up in what is clearly a very, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just, just very striking to hear the the Ukrainian national anthem and everybody standing up. I was like, what, what, what on earth is going on this, 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 there was no Ukrainian significance of this, of this event. Um, It was, you know, it was, it was very strange. So yeah, to return to the, the, to the point about neutrality that's that's the thing to you know that that's the the only I think viable political solution to this.
0: okay, very good. Uh, let us know what you found of this. Uh, we're interested to hear your thoughts um how you'd maybe like to see these going forward as well um, but again, We aim with the three articles to provide a serious political discussion on current affairs um, and to draw out what the stakes are and what the logical conclusions of the arguments that are presented that we discuss. Um, So we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We'll be back with another one of these, I guess, in a month's time. And that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.